Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, thank you for trying something new. I usually use this time to ask Ben to share some of the publications that he's recently written for. Ben, give me the plugs. You can find my work at Inside Hook, at Driving Line, and at Business Insider. And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine. Ben, it's time to talk trucks. Um, whether you like it or not, I want you to talk to me about trucks. I, um, I feel like I have no choice in this instance. Yeah, zero choice. You have to talk. Uh, specifically, I want you to talk about full-size uh, SUVs. Can you do Great that, Ben? big, hefty trucks. Is that what you want? Big old trucks. Wow, okay. We didn't have to culturally appropriate whatever that was, but... Uh, yeah, I, I've been driving a lot of trucks lately, Sammy, and uh, one of them is very, very new. I'm not sure if it's been delivered to dealerships yet. I know you can order it, and that is the 2021 GMC Yukon. The 2021 GMC Yukon, and you can get the Yukon in two sizes, right? Yeah, you can get Yukon and Yukon XL. Um, yeah, excellent. It's just like uh, the Slurpee Cups over at... Uh, at 7-Eleven. Yeah, right? so it's like Tahoe and Suburban, except it's XL. It used to, you know, it's it's funny because the long time ago, not that long, okay, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be, you, you used to have a Chevy Suburban and a GMC Suburban. And yeah. that was because those vehicles were, I mean, they had been branded the same for like 30 years, right? Like 40 years at that point, going back in time. And then when in the 90s, when they got rid of the Blazer and the Jimmy, they created the Tahoe and the Yukon. So finally you had somewhat different versions of GM's, I guess, big midsize SUV. And they were like, well, what are we going to do with the Suburbans? Because they're on the same platform. They're just kind of extended. And they're like, oh, we'll just keep calling them Suburbans for a while. And then someone flipped the switch and they're like, we can't have two Suburbans with two different badges. One of them has yeah. to change. And they're like, Chevy said, well, you know, Suburban's kind of our thing. And GMC was like, we'll do anything you say. <laughs> and so they just added XL to Yukon. It's kind of a kind of a downer, I think. Uh, well, it's important because the Suburban nameplate, I mean, I know we're going to be talking about the Yukon, but that Suburban nameplate is really long lasting. You said, you said 40 years? I think well, it's actually, it's like 50 years. But I was just life. talking about like when you had a GMC version and a Chevrolet oh, right. version. I don't know how far back the, the badge uh, engineering goes, but the Suburban itself is, it's at this point, what, 80 years old at least? So, so that's what I think is really interesting. Like when you talk about like name name place that have been retired why did the suburban last for so long when it could have been renamed anything when I, other I cars Suburbans have been like killed off and we brought the, like the blazer or or camaro disappeared for a while and came back do you think that you don't think suburban is a good name then that's where you're going with this um no that's not what i'm saying uh I, it sounds it's like how do i describe it the the name suburban Reminds me of a of a an older um cl like an older industry term like it, it's it's it just reminds me of an older age of automotive um products. That's interesting. I I never really thought about the the um I guess you'd say it's like it's like vintage like, of the word. Yeah, is that weird? <laughs> it's kind of weird. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's not. It's, it's just not a different. It. It's not worth much. But I'm just saying. It it's just a like different perspective. I, I like the fact that I've never considered it before. To me, suburban just means like suburban like 
outside of a major city. That's kind of how I've always thought of it. And I think that when they originally named the Suburban, and this is just me making stuff up on the fly, (laughs) but it was a way for people who were, you know, if you had a farm outside of a city and you were bringing stuff into the city to sell, you put it in your Suburban and you went into the city. It's the same thing if you were a tradesperson or whatever. It It was a useful vehicle for transporting stuff. And maybe you were transporting stuff from the city to outside the city and vice versa. And that name just kind of stuck. And then, you know, the 50s came along. We had the nuclear family, had suburbs that were sprouting up everywhere because people didn't want to live in cities anymore. And the name acquired a different type of relevance. Uh, So I just keep wondering, you know, they made this car to to relate to the suburban audience. Was there um, ever an automotive vehicle just called the Urban? That I don't know. I think there was a vehicle called the Urban Runabout. Yeah, I have a Honda concept called the Honda Urban EV. Mm, um, that's kind of weak, it, though. <laughs> there was also like the City, right? I think there's cars called City. In 1979, there was a car called the American Electric Urban Runabout. There you go. That was a micro car. But uh, you know, I, I just want to circle back to your your suburban name talk because. Oh. This is so you're saying okay. The name suburban kind of weird, kind of makes me think of old stuff. What does and the it's name? A long, it's a it's a a very long lasting name. It's it just feels old. Like how do you describe it? Old school. Like that's all I'm saying. Well, what do, what, what do you think when you hear Yukon? Like are you like picturing mm-hmm. some type of Arctic adventure? Like what I like is that? that. I like that a little bit more because the Yukon. Same with like Colorado. Um, it like brings about this idea of like countryside of like something a little bit more adventurous, a little different than suburban, which sounds really bland in comparison. So, so if a vehicle is named after a state or a province, <laughs> yeah, it holds. It or holds... the outback, or what else is there out there? Baja. That's, I'm always going to say Baja, I suppose. So I that that gives it more credence with you. Yeah. Okay. I mean, fine. <laughs> well, a name can mean so much. I mean, it doesn't have to mean a lot. I mean, a car, like, we have cars that are just alphanumeric letters and numbers. They, yeah, that's they, true. They, like, it's better to have the car um, say something with its name, and that connection, I think, is a little bit more effective, can be more effective than well, just a bunch that's of what bothers me about. Together. That's what bothers me about just adding XL to the Yukon name, because you have one <laughs> name that's thought out, and then you just have, okay... <laughs> <laughs> it's like Ford does that. There's the Expedition and the Expedition Max, right? Max, Which is yeah. the most early 2000s name you can have. Like, it might as well be a Mountain Dew flavor at that point. Uh, but XL, it's it's right up there, too. I mean, XL, X Games, I don't really see a difference. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, so hold on. We've gone far off the, the point of this conversation, which is the Yukon is all new. Um, and this is a car that used to be based on... Um, the pickup truck platform, right? Well, is it still based on- It yeah. still is, yeah. So okay. all new is an interesting term because, it, I mean, this is a substantial redesign of the Yukon. First of all, the Yukon and the Tahoe, which is its its sibling from Chevrolet when it's not being called the Suburban, uh, they're the they're more reasonably sized SUV of the two. Yeah, they they sell a decent number. I, I think it's around a hundred thousand units a year. Uh, Ford is kind of eating uh, eating their their lunch in the last year or so. The sales of the Yukon and the Tahoe went down. Sales of the Expedition went up. It's not that surprising. But because... hold on, wait, 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 hold on. You're telling me one car, the Expedition, the Expedition Max, 
beat out the sales of four cars? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying okay. that if you were to compare them one-on-one, Ford yeah. grew and Chevrolet and GMC, they in 2019, they lost market share. And the reason is simple. Ford brought out a new Expedition that had a, a, a pretty kick-ass engine uh, with that three-and-a-half liter EcoBoost. I think it's still a three-and-a-half liter in that truck. It might be the yeah. three-liter. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to let you live or die by that fact. I it's, don't, it's I don't, I'm not going to interfere. It's a crazy amount of power. We saw how much power is available with the Navigator that's based on the same yeah. platform. I mean, it's like 450 horses, I think, and 500 pound-feet, some crazy numbers. So anyway, yeah. it was a much more modern vehicle. And uh, GMC and Chevrolet knew they had to up the ante. So that's what we got for 2021. And there's two major changes that were made to the vehicle that are important, I think. And the first one is the one that everyone is talking about. And that's the decision to move away from a live axle in the back to an independent rear suspension. This is a huge deal. Uh, And it's something that I didn't realize had not happened prior. I actually, I'm going to sound really ignorant, but I actually originally thought that the Cadillac Escalade, which is also built on the same platform, used an independent rear suspension. And I was way off on that. So this is the first time these cars will have a modern rear end suspension setup. Well, I mean, modern a live axle. It's it sounds a little bit, uh, I guess, Neanderthal. Integrated, yes. Uh, but there's just reasons- like the nameplate suburban, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's old. Uh, the reasons they use it are understandable. First is GM's got a really good thing going with MagnaRide. So that's their adaptive suspension system. This is the same suspension that Ferrari licenses for its sports cars. And you can buy it on the Yukon. And you can, you've can you been able to buy it on the Yukon for a long, long time. So that suspension has really helped deal with the harshness that you might expect from a live rear axle. And I guess the unsteadiness that might come with it. But there's limits to what you can do with that. Right. Uh, so for 2021, they, they got rid of the, oh, sorry. Uh, the other reason why you would keep the live axle is because the Yukon's built on the Silverado GMC Sierra platform, the, the mm-hmm. full-size pickup truck platform. So it's way cheaper to just move all that over lock, stock and barrel than it is to create two different versions of the same platform. So and if it's one thing I know about automotive engineering, uh, cheaper is always better. Always better. It's That's always the solution. When we look at a car, again. how can we just not spend any money making a new SUV? How can yeah. we use these clocks that we've been using since the <laughs> mid-80s in a car we're selling as a quote-unquote new vehicle in 2020? Yes, that's Toyota's. Uh, that's happening in Toyota's uh, boardroom. I'd like every, to think that Toyota has like day. a. I'd like to think Toyota has a clock czar, like someone who was appointed king or queen of clocks like 20 years ago. And they have they've been in the organization so long, they've accumulated so much power that they just no one can sway them from including that little Casio clock on every Corolla or I guess I mean um, high end Toyota SUV. <laughs> If you look at the organizational structure, there is just this one branch of the 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 Toyota division of this guy who controls all the clocks, and, and it's the same like, level as Accio Toyota yeah, on, the, exactly. on that diagram, but it's like way far off car, to the left. Yeah, and every time a new car shows up, they have to consult him and deal with him. He just sneaks into a meeting and he's like, "Yes, but put this blue uh, digital clock in there." That'll be that'll that's he, my contribution. It's gladiator style. Like they go into a room and they show him the dashboard, him or her the dashboard, and it's like thumbs up, thumbs down. And if you get thumbs down, you have to add more clocks. <laughs> so anyway, Chevy didn't and GMC didn't need more clocks, but there are a lot of problems with the live axle uh, setup for the SUVs that didn't necessarily relate to how they drove. 
And with the previous generation Yukon, the biggest problem was the load floor at the back was no longer competitive. Right. Would it would it surprise you to know, Sammy, that the Yukon, the 2019 Yukon, had under 100 cubic feet of total storage? I mean, I... I guess I, I, to go with this, yes, it would surprise me. So the reason for that is a live axle poses problems when it comes to packaging. Yeah. And for a long time, GMC and Chevrolet didn't have to worry about that in their big SUVs because the rear seats, the third row, it didn't fold flat. They lifted out. You had to remove them completely, which is a huge hassle because not only are they heavy and if you're a smaller person, it sucks, but where are you going to put them? Like you got to have a place to keep your seats and the place where you keep your seats is inside your SUV. (laughs) Now it is. Yes. All the time. So when they put folding seats in finally last in the previous generation truck, there, the alive axle requires room to move up and down. So the, the, the center diff is, is pretty big, and the way it's uh, controlled by the suspension, it has to have up-and-down movement. So you can't just stuff the seats down below the floor like you would in a minivan or something, and that, that was a problem. So you ended up with a high-load floor that ate up a ton of space and was difficult to use, and compared to the Ford, it was not very practical. And compared to the previous generation Suburbans and Tahos and Yukons, it was not very practical either. Okay. So now we've got independent rear suspension, we've got better packaging, hopefully, and and what else? And well, that better packaging has uh, made a huge difference. There's 66% more room behind the third row for storing gear, which is wow. kind of nuts in, in a Sorry. vehicle this big. 66% more room. Yes. In a that- vehicle that's already, you know, usually quite... Spacious. So what they what they did is they stretched the wheelbase of the Yukon by about five inches, and they dropped the floor five inches. So those two things together have had a really big impact on how they've been able to manage the space in the back. So those two things give you it helps to give you another thirty cubic feet of space. It's one hundred twenty two point nine cubes total, which is with everything folded, and that's. Competitive with the Expedition. That's what you can get in the Expedition. And I'm not talking about the... I think the XL is like another 20 cubic feet. Um, but that number isn't as much of a of an increase because they didn't really... Um, they didn't have the same boost in wheelbase as they did with the regular Yukon. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the increases were a little more modest. But... The the mid row the middle row seats can slide forward and backwards now. They they didn't used to be able to do that. Nice. Okay. So it'll be easier to get in the back seat as it, in that third row as well. It is. Well, I mean, you can always walk between the rows if you have the captain's chairs in the Yukon, which is because it's so wide inside. But the the real payoff, Sammy, is if you're sitting in the back back, which sucks normally in even in a vehicle like a suburban or a Yukon. Uh, you have 10 extra inches of legroom. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is huge. I mean, yeah. car companies get excited when they give you like one or two inches more legroom. Yeah. And this is this is a game changer. I spent some time back there in the truck. And for the first time ever, I actually felt comfortable sitting in that third row. And uh, that's a big win for the Yukon, I think. And I wasn't even in a Yukon XL. I was in the regular Yukon. Oh, wow. Okay. So that makes a big difference. Um, what else is there to talk about here? I mean, it's... it's first of all, does that uh change in the rear suspension impact the way the the, the vehicle rides is it uh making gonna make the car more expensive or maybe less capable in terms of towing or off-roading so 
it, it might seem like it makes it less capable for towing because a lot of people will swear by the fact that you need a solid rear axle. That's it, what I've been told. The, I, I, I've tried to say, you know, independent rear suspension. I get shut down by these towing fanatics. I know, know they like, come out of nowhere. You, oh you God, don't see them coming and, and you, it's just a negative experience. But I can tell you that GMC's rating for the Yukon is 8,400 pounds of max towing, which is exactly the same as it was when it had a live axle. So okay. it, it, it doesn't seem to have had any effect. I have not towed with the truck yet, so I can't tell you if it does or not. But I did drive it back to back with a new Silverado. And the Silverado has, you know, the same setup as it always has. It's a little hard to compare them directly because you have an empty cargo bed in the Silverado. You have stiff springs, uh, stiff coil springs that are designed to go off-road and also carry cargo. Whereas in the Denali version of the Yukon that I drove, you have an air suspension. So those things have an impact on ride quality. But what I was really looking for when I drove the Yukon with the IRS is how it uh, dealt with corners when you hit a bump mid-corner, which is usually where you'll see a large truck skip to one side or the other. And uh, the Denali was way more composed than it had ever been in the past in those circumstances. So I was pretty happy with how it performed, and I think it's a big upgrade for GMC, and I'm happy that it's here. Nice. Okay. Um, what motor did you have in this? And is, like, if it's based on the same vehicle as the – or the same platform as the – um, Silverado, is there going to be as many options for the engine here? There are as many. Uh, well, there's one less, I guess you could say. You get all the V8s that you would find with the Silverado. So you get a 5.3 as the base, 355 horsepower. You get the carryover 6.2, which is 420 horse. That's what was in by Denali, and it's actually standard in Denali now. Uh, but optional almost across the board is a 3-liter, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 3-liter Duramax turbo diesel. Oh, wow. The we standard had, motor is a diesel in, in this GMC? Even in a Denali? No, no, no sorry. I said, you didn't say that. Sorry. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, it's, it's, it's I optional. got excited. Yeah, yeah I know. Okay. Diesel, I mean, it gets you going. But uh, it's that's the first time we've had a diesel in a Yukon in, I think, 25 years, maybe 20 years. And uh, it's got 277 horsepower, and it has the same torque as the 6.2, so 460 pound-feet. This is cool. It's going to give you fuel mileage. We're assuming. We don't have the numbers yet. But it's it's a nice addition for the Denali. I think it helps it compete better with European SUVs at the same price point in the luxury segment. And it's just something that I think a lot of people are going to buy with the truck. Nice. Okay. Um, I wanted to add one more thing. Um, How much more of a difference would uh, 900 pounds make? Because apparently the max towing rating of a a Expedition or an Expedition Max is in the 9,000 pound range, ranging all the way up to 9,300 pounds. Okay, well, my first instinct would be don't tow 10,000 pounds with your expedition. (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. And I think that that's good advice for anyone with a a light-duty pickup or SUV. So that's that's my comment on that. (laughs) Okay, fine. So you you don't think it makes I, I I agree I don't think it makes that massive of a of a difference um, I can't think of you know somebody who would pick it over that that different tow rating but it's worth bringing up as well uh, what's the transmission in this um, vehicle you mentioned it, it, it it's all ten speeds all ten uh, speeds the the transmission the, the the vehicle drove very well with the six point two it was surprisingly quick for a large and heavy vehicle one thing that I do not like about the transmission is the shifter which has morphed onto this weird dashboard thing where it's it's kind of like a it looks like a grip that you put your hand into and you could push and pull the buttons so drive is like push 
I think, and reverses pull, and there's a push to park, and then there's an L button for low gear that you push, and then beside that, there's these plus and minus to change the gears. It's really strange. But no, no multiply, no like times button or division. There's no, button. there's no division button. I mean, it's, it's it not doesn't, a calculator up there. Doesn't have a graphing feature. Uh, what's strange about it is GMC tried something similar in the terrain. Remember, they had that yeah. strange kind of shifter that was it was buried under the center console kind of deal. Yep, yep. I remember. This one is different than that. So it's like <laughs> now we have two unusual shifters for no reason. And it's it's kind of – I don't mind push-button stuff, but just make them all push. Like, So, yeah, that's what I'm going to ask you. First of all, do you think an automaker should have like a standard setup for their, their push-button transmissions? Across yes. All? Like, like a Terrain and a, and, an, uh, and a Yukon, they're different products. They're different sizes. They're like a, a push-button setup could fit in a different way in one car than the other. I, I personally, I actually really do find the push button transmissions to be pretty useful because they open up um, space either on the column or um, center console, and that can allow for more storage. I, yeah. I'm always looking for more at hand storage in a vehicle. I know you are, why. especially in your giant trucks. But I think that <laughs> you should have consistency. I think a button is there to be pushed or to be pulled. I don't want to do both side by side. I think that's yep. confusing, and it confused me a couple times while I was driving. Another car does that. Um, Honda does that with the reverse button in their in their push button transmissions. Yes. Is like you have to push inwards and down, kind of like a I don't know how to describe it. It's not quite a trigger, but it's like a it's, beckoning motion. But I thought that was interesting because I think it made sense because you're pressing like backwards as if you're trying to tell the car I'm going to go backwards. It's reverse now. I'm pointing backwards when I press the button. I mean, that sounds logical until you realize that if you're in drive with a traditional shifter, you have to go forward to hit reverse. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's who, who knows where logic ends and begins in the mind. I always of this. go all the way up to park and then pull then it back. back? Yeah, yeah, that's the safe way to do it. Sure. Um, the other thing that I remember um, that was worth mentioning in these new um, SUVs is that the interior has been um, dramatically improved. And I think... This will translate pretty neatly into the next segment when you get the chance because you drove one of the SUV, the, the pickup trucks lately. And I want to know if you, you can tell a significant difference between the generations um, with the interiors of these two vehicles. Oh, of course. There's no comparison. So the Silverado interior is the weakest part of the truck. <laughs> yes. It's the, one of the main features that keeps it from being competitive among other full-size pickups. A Ram has a much nicer interior. The, even the Ford one is better. But in the Denali, you don't really get the feeling like you're just in a nicer pickup. They've done a nice job of making the experience feel special, especially the Denali has the uh, an integrated infotainment system instead of a, a pop-up one. And uh, it's it's overall a much nicer experience. The one thing that was a little weird about the Denali is it has a head-up display, and it's huge. Like, I think it's like 10 inches or some crazy thing, because nice. it had all the... Well, it had all the normal stuff you'd expect from a head-up display, but it also has like vehicle orientation. Like you know, when you're off-road, you want to know if you're at, if you're tilting forwards, backwards, side to side at an angle. Okay. It has all of that, like an inclinometer built That's into. Cool. Yeah, it's cool, but I couldn't figure out how to turn it off, and I was not oh. driving off-road. So, <laughs> so no, oh, so that those settings were always there. Sorry, always there. I'm like I'm like, it's cool that it has that feature. Nice to have like pages on your head-up display. <laughs> not so you always got this thing being like. You're you're at a one degree angle, right? Yeah, now. I'm not like, saying I'm not saying yeah. you can't turn it off, but I'm saying I'm not smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> okay, um, 
I really like these new head-up displays. I think um, I think head-up displays are, are fantastic, and I, I love the amount of information that's coming to new head-up displays. Um, you're going to notice that some of them also include like blind spot monitoring information in there as well, so you can already get a sense of what's around your vehicle um, without checking the mirrors or anything like that. Not to say you don't have to check your mirrors in your windows. That's kind of what you're saying, you... Sammy. You're no, kind of saying just no, caution to the wind. Ben, stop it. <laughs> Live your life. <laughs> yeah. Just to let you know what's going on around you without having to take your, your eyes off the road. I'm not saying to change lanes or whatever, just to make you know that, that there's someone around. Um, and is there a lot of uh, new technology in these, in these things? You sent me a photo. You seem pretty impressed with uh, the dashboard uh, integrated Spotify. Yeah, but I'm just a country bumpkin, Sammy. So now that everyone yeah. knows that, I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things I think I mentioned this with, um, the trailblazer is I found out that I had wireless Android auto and Apple CarPlay. And I found that to be a huge game changer with, um, the latest, um, as GM SUVs. And I was hoping that this is something that's coming to this whole new generation of, of SUVs. And I'm sure it's coming to the, to the Yukon and, and Tahoe as well. I, I, I don't know. I don't use either of those features. So it's, it's, it's not something I think about when I'm driving these vehicles. All right. Um, what else is there? To, oh, wait, hold on. We're talking about the, the the Denali. Did it feel like a range topping sort of experience in terms of the interior, in terms of the the features? Was yeah. anything else? Th- and the styling too. I think on the outside, okay. it really kind of projects a uh, a top tier image. Uh, there's another version. There's a few other versions of the truck. There's like an SLE, I think. Um, there's the AT4, which is like an off-road version. That's the first time we're getting that. And the off-road one. I can't one, stand the look of that AT4. Well, it's got the tucked bumper for better better approach angles, and you can get an extra two inches of. Gla- it, it, you can get it with coil springs or the same air suspension that comes with the Denali. But the air suspension on the AT4, if you're in low range, it pops you up to give you an extra two inches of ground clearance. So that's useful off-road. Uh, it has a skid plate and hill descent control and all that stuff. Um, I don't think a lot of people are off-roading with this truck because it's so big, but if you occasionally need to, the AT4 is the one you want to do. But what's interesting is just how close in price the AT4 and the Denali are. Uh, the base Yukon is like 50 grand. AT, AT4 is like a couple trim levels up and it's 66,000. Then the Denali is only 69. So if I'm picking, it's obviously the Denali. <laughs> <laughs> I think that makes sense. Um, there was something that you mentioned with the air, the air control, because I thought that um, I thought that the Denali's are known for having magnetic ride control, right? Yeah. And now these vehicles have both in these in in both air air ride and or air suspension and magnetic ride control. Well, the, the air suspension is for the is replaces the traditional shock traditional springs. Yeah. And the magnetic ride is the uh, suspension, the um, the shock absorbers. So you need both Neat. of those things. Wow, that sounds complicated. Well, no, it's not not really. I, I think they've done it in the past. Um, it's just it, it really is a big step up over what the Silverado had, which is why it's you know it was hard for me to do an apples to apples comparison. Okay, but uh, it, it's it's definitely it gives you a ballpark impression of how much of a difference the IRS makes. Okay, so I mean, I think in this class of vehicle, um, these SUVs, these really full size um, SUVs. Or even beyond full size, extended extended size. Beyond full size. Is this another segment we've invented for the SUV? Yeah. Okay. Extended, I, I'm into it. Extended SUVs. What's beyond um, beyond full size? Extra, it, like extra extra wheelbase. Where does bus fit in? <laughs> yeah, that's is it's a moment below bus. Extra 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 wheelbase. Yes, the max with like four X's at the end. Okay. Um, what about a dually Yukon? Oh my God, I'm trying to say something here. Ben. <laughs> 
So it's always been really expedition um, and suburban in this class. There are other vehicles like the. Oh no, I'm running out of. I'm, I forgot what it's called. Well, there's the Nissan Armada. Oh, no, that's the one I'm thinking of. The Nissan Which Armada. Which I don't think anyone buys. And there's the uh, Toyota Land Cruiser. No, that's way more expensive. I think the Land Cruiser starts at eighty grand. Oh my goodness! Okay, so that's like so, thirty thousand more than a start <laughs> starting point for the Yukon. So these vehicles have always been pretty much the the top of their class. Where like, how does this change things going forward? Does it change anything? Does it, is it going to put pressure on Ford? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's definitely competitive with Ford now. I think that they're both equally good at, in terms of technology and features and uh, capability. So uh, it's it's a good move for GM o- across the board. The styling on the Tahoe is a lot more aggressive than the styling on the on the Yukon, so that's might be polarizing for some people. Okay. But uh, other than that, I think I think this is. I mean, I like these vehicles. They're they're super impractical in some ways. Uh, they're, they're hard to drive in a city. They're hard to park. Um, they take up a lot of space. But if you live in the suburbs or if you live in the country, it's a different story. And it's one of the few vehicles in the market where you can tow your trailer and bring all your friends along at the same time or your family and a lot of gear. You got to keep in mind, though, and we were talking about towing 10,000 pounds earlier. That's based on gross vehicle weight. So if you have like every row, every seat inside the Suburban or the Tahoe or the Yukon, if that's filled up seven people, let's say, that's like what, 1,400 extra pounds? You got to subtract that from your tow rating. So now you're down yeah. to 7,000 pound tow rating. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're trailering. It's, it, it, these things, these vehicles are very capable, but physics is ultimately physics. So then the I will admit that um, it does seem like a pretty big uh, change over the last model. But what really blows my mind, what I'm really looking forward to is the upcoming Escalade, which will be based, which is like these are the foundation of the Escalade. And that looks like a really high tech vehicle with um, super cruise and some massive screens and stuff like that. It looks really high end, luxurious. I can't wait to uh, test that out. Well, you know, personally, I've always been a Denali fan over the Escalade because The Escalade is an interesting experience, but it's also very brash and extroverted. And I think the Denali gives you, has traditionally given you all of the comfort of the Escalade in a more subdued package that just fits my personality better and at a better price. (laughs) So I'm curious to see if the new Escalade, like you said, takes it to a really high level that the Denali can't touch because the interiors are going to be quite different from maybe the first time ever. Right. Um, You, so... In getting prepared for this uh, Yukon, you also drove one of these Silverados. So tell me a little bit about that experience, and then we'll talk about um, the car that I drove. Sure. Uh, Not a lot to say about the Silverado. We've talked about them in the past. Not that recently. I think it's been a couple years since we've had one on the show. But I was driving the Trail Boss, the LT Trail Boss. Oh, that's that's the big deal. That's the the important part of this story. This is the the news, right? Like We've driven so many different types of pickup trucks over the years. But these off-road models, that's where it's at, right? Yeah, so this is the first dedicated off-road model from Chevrolet in their full-size truck. Before, they only had the Z71 package, which is pretty good. Um, But, you know, Ram came out with the Rebel, and Ford has the Raptor, and... GM didn't really have anything similar to that. So they've created they've created this Trail Boss. You can get it. You can get an LT version, and you can get a um, custom version. Really, the only difference is access to features and engines. It's it's uh, the the off road gear remains the same. And what's surprising is the Trail Boss and the Z71 aren't all that different. 
Um, the Z seventy one package. That's is unfortunate. Ba- that's unfortunate. Well, like, no, that's it's, really- it's, it's not that dissimilar from Ram though, because they offer an off road package for the fifteen hundred that's very similar to the Rebel. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the Z seventy one is the base on which they build the Trail Boss. So the big difference is the uh, so if you get a Z seventy one truck, you get Rancho shocks or twin tubes. Uh, you get uh, a more rugged suspension, hill descent control, skid plates, and I think um, ooh, I want to say 18-inch all-terrain tires. If you go to the LTZ, you get 20 inches, and you can uh, all of that stuff's on the Trail Boss too. Except the Trail Boss gets Ranchos that are a monotube design with it. I think it uh, no, it's it's not an external reservoir. That's that's on the Rebel. This is just a it's a monotube setup. And it comes standard with a locking differential. So you can order the locking differential with the Z71 and kind of like make your own semi-trail boss setup. But the trail boss just kind of puts everything together. And it comes with 33-inch tires uh, or the option of 33-inch. I think it's standard is 32 and then there's 33s if you want. So that's something you're not getting on the Z71 either. So it's it's not a huge difference, uh, but it is a difference. The thing about it is these trucks are so big, taking them off-road, I mean, this setup's not you're not going to really do any any rock climbing with this kind of thing, you know? It's it's this is kind of if you want to just blast across a dirt road really fast or like a a field or something like that or or a <laughs> dune, like something where you need a suspension that's tough and is going to keep you in control and is going to keep you from bouncing all over the place. But you, you're not going to – you have the kind of overhangs on this truck that are going to get hung up on boulders and that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. I mean I guess so. I and, always and- find it – I always find like off-road focused um, trucks to be – like they, they're kind of caught in a middle ground. I think um, when it comes to off-roading in a pickup truck, like when you're going on trails or stuff like that, you might be found at a bit of a disadvantage. Yeah, because the wheelbase the size, is so right? long. But on the other hand, if you need to take your truck to, like, say, a work site, a place that hasn't been fully developed or where there's no roads, uh, you're towing it to the cottage, towing something to the cottage, you want that, like, extra comfort and confidence that comes with with many of these off-road-oriented trucks. Um, I want to add that we also have that new Ram um, SRT. I think it's called – I think it's an SRT, the the T-Rex or the TRX. Yeah, the TRX. And that means that we're now left out of the three big truck makers that Chevy has yet to deliver um, a really like high end or high performance off-roading truck. And I, I was, I was gonna pick your brains as to what the Trail Boss might indicate or might hint um, at an upcoming. Um, all off-road monstrous truck. I, I don't think there's any link. The end. The, the question for GM is what power plant goes there? Because my Trail Boss had the 6.2, and it's the same one that's in the, in the Denali that we were just talking right. about, but it had a performance package on it that basically boils down to a cold air intake and a catback exhaust. So it's like 15 more horsepower and I think 9 more pound-feet of torque. So like 435 horses. This mm. is the most powerful engine in the GM portfolio. And I, I like it very much. It's a great engine. But, you know, Ford had the crazy EcoBoost where they could turn well, up the turbos. there was a turbo. V8 and then there was the turbo. Yeah, but they could, turn up the, yeah. they could turn up the turbos and, and make a lot of power. Ram has the Hellcat engine. But yes. GM doesn't really have anything like that unless you start looking at stuff like the LSA or the LT4. And those are supercharged engines that you would find in uh, the Camaro ZL1 or the the ZR ZL1 Camaro or the ZR1 Corvette. Right. I, I think actually the Corvette is the LQ9. Um, 
The, Whatever, those, uh, one of these one of these uh, performance motors with a supercharger, yeah. right? I mean, they're not gonna they're not gonna use the LSA because that's the old generation LS engine. But yeah. the the new LT4, you could put that in a pickup and you get like 650 horsepower. So I guess maybe you could do that. But Chevy has bigger problems they need to solve before oh. you get to that issue, oh. and that's the fact that the truck is just not competitive. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't meet the same standards as almost every other vehicle from Detroit. And, I mean, it's ahead of things like the the Tundra, which is a very old design, and the Titan, which is kind of like a weird in-betweener. Yep. But uh, the interior doesn't doesn't match up. The driving experience is only okay. I mean, the Trail Boss, it's nice to have that hardcore suspension setup, but you pay for it on, on regular roads. Like this, when I was talking about the rear end bouncing around, man, this truck did that a lot. So... I would like to see a better Silverado. I, I know they can build it, and I don't quite understand why they didn't. Um, I, I I don't know what to say about that. It's really frustrating to hear time after time that um, it's it feels less competitive than the Ram and the Ford F-150. Um, because, you know, this latest generation sounded promising, but, like, just didn't really deliver. The interior in particular, I was never impressed with. But if you want to talk about the motor, um, I wanted to do, I wanted to flip things around a little bit. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Cadillac CT4V that you had. Yes. Which featured a truck engine, um, the, the 2.7 liter, um, Four-cylinder? Is that all right? Yes. I don't think that's available in the Trail Boss. I think the, the smallest <laughs> engine you can get is the 4.3, and that's if you get the custom package. But clearly, you know, the truck motors are migrating to the to other areas of the, of the GM portfolio, specifically Cadillac. We should anticipate that the really high-performance Cadillac motor that we're waiting on, that Blackwing, can also move around too, right? Come on. I guess this so. Is motor, this is a motor that we know nothing about, have never seen. <laughs> Does it, as far as we know, it doesn't exist. It was impressive enough to name cars after it that don't have that engine. So you're so, saying there's going to be a black wing pickup. <laughs> That's, that would, that is the boldest statement <laughs> I have heard in 2020. No, that that, is, that's not what I'm. That's not exactly what I'm. Pro- I'm not promising that. Then, well, I know you. But, it's not. First of all, it's not in your power to promise anything. Yeah. <laughs> but I just think that what GM has done is prepare us for the ability to to cross their brands with whatever motors and technology they have, um, and they can they could if they wanted to offer a black wing. Uh, pickup truck that would be wild it's like a 32 valve twin turbo pickup truck but you know is it possible could something like that happen i I mean there's a lot of room in the truck engine bay so i don't see why not but what what i think is more another stumbling block for gm in creating their raptor competitor is as you mentioned before there was an original raptor that had a v8 before they went to the yukobus version they built their they built their audience with that truck there was nothing on the market like the raptor when it appeared and then when they kind of went more upmarket with the second generation, they were able to pull people with the success of the first truck. With Ram, the Hellcat already has a huge cult following. You say Hellcat truck and everyone understands what that means. Yeah. But for GM, what's the market? I mean, if they say LT4 truck, people are going to be like, okay. Like, that, doesn't, that doesn't have the cultural cachet. I of, think there is a market. Hold up. Let's, let's, I'm let's... not saying that there, the market doesn't exist. I'm saying that... They're going to have a harder time building the the same level of um, recognition among truck buyers that Ford already enjoys and Ram enjoys because of being Hellcat adjacent. 
There's one um, blind spot with the new, with the current Raptor, and it's that the EcoBoost engine um, does not excite people, does not sound as good, and it has a different power delivery than the V8 that came before it. And there might be enthusiasts who really prefer that V8. Sure. Then again, I mean, the T Rex is going to have a supercharged V8, so that's a whole different. That you're going to be you're going to be competing with Ram at that point. Do you want to be the third one to the party? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to be? You the th- are you have to show up fashionably late with something really good? Well, yeah, but the other thing too is, do you want to be the third one to the party with like an empty guest list? Because oh, you, you, you haven't done too. the groundwork. I mean, the ZR2 for the Colorado is a fantastic yeah. truck. It's but so cool, of- but there's really nothing else there that like. No, fights with it. Well, what I'm saying, well, no, it, it goes up against the the Tacoma TRD Pro for sure. But no, what it I'm goes saying up against is, the Rubicon Gladiator. Yeah, maybe. But what <laughs> what I'm what I'm saying is, when when they brought out the ZR2, that was the first time Chevy done anything like that. They'd used ZR2 in the past, I think, on a Blazer um, as a as an off road package, but nothing this cool or this focused. So that was that was a groundbreaking thing for them. That was their first edition Raptor. And so that's something that they have to build on. You know, like I don't think they expected crazy business right out of the gate. And I, I'm saying that if they build a, a, a Raptor fighting Silverado, they're gonna be in the same position. And it's it I it's expensive and time consuming to create a customer base that way when you're third to the party. And I mean, they were second to the party with the Colorado. So that's not so bad. I mean, Ford stayed out of it. Nissan has for the most part stayed out of it. Uh, and, and Ram does not have anything in that segment. Um, I keep thinking about, uh, I, the other, the other area where GM might pull, might surprise somebody is with their EV offerings. This is going to be weird, but, um, not that I think that EVs and off-roading go together. I don't know how they can mesh, meld those two Let worlds. me tell you about the new Hummer, Sammy. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at, is that this Hummer, with all of its new features and different batteries and a 1,000 horsepower and who knows what, maybe that can that can be something, too. That's another like uh, item in the GM portfolio to help here. And it's what bugs me the most about GM is that they have so many pieces to make like it feels like if you were if if there was like a shopping if there was a, a a shopping aisle with all of the pieces of GM that you could you could ask for the the great engines the wicked suspension the the well the Cadillac S styling and the Super Cruise there are so many features spread out around the GM portfolio but they have never come together in one complete product um in a completely finished product and it really bugs me the most whenever they're making a new car. Um, of course, that would mean that that car would probably be like $100,000 or more. It would be some halo flagship vehicle. But to me, it's like what I'm always looking for GM to accomplish. And they always feel like they've held back um, for this next thing coming down the pipeline. Well, speaking of electric vehicles from GM, I, I believe you've been driving one over the last week. Yeah, I've gotten myself reacquainted with the um, Chevrolet Bolt, and that's because I'll be comparing it to a Kia EV, a Kia Soul EV, which I learned recently is no longer even being offered in the United States anymore. So, even though we get two different versions of it in Canada, yeah, there's two different range options, two different battery options, and two different power options for Canadian buyers. But um, my time with the Bolt has reminded me that it's a very solid. Um, if if not particularly sexy EV, it does get the job done. It's extremely spacious. It feels a little bit 
more um, agile and fun to drive than the typical compact hatchback, I think it would be fair to compare the, the feeling of acceleration and the refinement to something like a GTI. And I remember you've always made this argument that the GTI has transitioned from like this hot hatch into something more refined, a little bit more luxury oriented. And while I don't think the, the cabin of the, of the Bolt gets to that level yet, but the ride quality is very smooth. I mean, it's quiet. There's tons of torque. It gets up to speed. Um, and, you know, you've got that added element of being something unique in terms of an EV. And, you know, the Bolt, I agree with you about the interior. I think it's still in the phase of electric cars are futuristic and we have to make this look different from what you would expect kind mm. of uh, design school. And yeah. I'm glad we're getting away from that with electric vehicles as they become more mainstream. But you definitely, there's, there's definitely an aspect of look at me in the Bolt. The issue I have with the Bolt, especially with the interior, is one, the infotainment system has been better executed in their other vehicles. We both drove the, Trailbla- the Trailblazer a couple of weeks ago, and it had a much better infotainment system than what I'm getting in the, in the Bolt, which is a shame. Um, and I already mentioned that um, that new Trailblazer had wireless Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, which would have been a huge help in the Bolt. The other issue I have is that there's a lot of this like cheap plastic. It's a really weird textured plastic um, in the bolt around the infotainment system on the dashboard. And it feels absolutely um, – it feels really cheap. It feels ugly. Um, it's, it's not anything I want to interact with. And it, if you've been in a Prius, if you've been in a Prius especially with that white plastic interior, you'll know what I mean. Like there's sometimes you look at plastic and you're like, I don't ever want to see that again in my life. What about that stuff in the Prius especially? It's like a – I want to – I think it's also in the i3 from BMW. But it's kind of like a pa- papier-mâché type of mm-hmm. artificial fiber and you find it in like the door panels and some of the touch surfaces. Is that in the bolt? I don't remember. It's That's not in the bolt, but I do see like a lot of these, um, like reci- lots of reti- recycled materials and different like recycled fibers being put everywhere. There was one car that I actually made it kind of neat. It was the Volvo XC40 had like this carpet on the, do- on the doors. I don't know if you remember this, that was kind of like stylish and different, but I don't no, the bolt. That, no. The Bolt doesn't have that cheap feeling, like, fibrous material. It just has this really weird, like, textured uh, plastic that I just can't get a, I, I just can't fall in love with. Um, the other issues I have with the, the Bolt is um, the exterior design, as you said, is really mainstream. It just doesn't, like, it doesn't scream, I'm different, I'm an easy. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, what I will admit is I do think it's a little bit cooler looking. It looks less dorky than a leaf. <laughs> That's not hard though, right? I mean, no, I do think it looks pretty good. It's actually, there was one parked in front of my house yesterday and it was in the, uh, that really bright blue color they had. Right. And I think that that's great. I, I, I like that kind of statement that that car makes. I know I was just complaining about the whole design. We're, we're different because we're an EV thing, but mm-hmm. uh, on the exterior, I, I like the idea of like a bright blue bolt. I want to also add that one of the most interesting things about the Bolt is something that we don't that doesn't get a lot of coverage is that it can be had for ext- an extremely low price point. And I mean that that doesn't mean in terms of the actual like purchasing price, you can get the, you can lease this thing for less than 200 actually close to 150 bucks a month. Yeah, I which think is if you're insane. a Costco member, right? Like that's the rate right now. Yeah, $154 a month if you're a Costco uh, member, which includes 12,000 miles per year. Um, and I think that's – I can't get over that. Imagine that, Ben. I, like, I'm, I'm going to make a statement right now. 
I don't know if you believe me. If that offer was available in Canada, and I'll, I'll, I'll go one better. If it was $200 a month in Canada, I would have a Volt in my driveway right now. And that would be my runabout, my leave-behind car for press fleets, uh, my winter daily driver. No question. That is an outstanding value for the money. It's unbelievable. I can't get over just how affordable that is. And especially for our U.S. our U.S. listeners, I mean, we have a ton of them. Um, if you have been curious um, about the, the Bolt, and I, I just can't recommend a better deal than $154 a month for a, a brand new electric car with really solid rate, 259 miles. Um, it's nothing to, to laugh at. And um, it's very spacious. It's fun to drive. What's the? I, 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 there are downsides, obviously, to going to an electric vehicle, but at that yeah. price point, I think you're you're you can overlook some of them. I think the biggest downside is having to pay to install a level two charger in your own home. I think that would be the right. the cost that kind of evens things out. But you know, they have a deal with Costco too in Canada, and I only know this because I was at a dealership picking up the Denali, actually, or sorry, the Silverado. And I noticed the sign out front saying, you know, Costco members, you get like a $500 gift card and a special price. And I tried to find it online and I couldn't find any details. And then I realized that you have to have been a Costco member since like January 2020. You can't just join to get a bolt. So like that was frustrating. I don't know if the deal is the same in the States, but it's worth investigating. Um, the other thing I want to add is, um, I'm learning a lot about the, the easy, like, uh, lifestyle. It's, it is, um, it's interesting as somebody who doesn't have a charger in my home because I live in an apartment, I, it means that I have to go places and I'm going out of my way to find chargers, um, public chargers and you're making new friends is what you're saying. You're finding people hanging out at the chargers. They're, they're also not doing anything. Maybe things get a little weird. I see where this is going. I'm actually a little um, perplexed because the most people I see, the most common vehicle I see at a electric vehicle charger, a public electric vehicle charger, is a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Something that does not require the use of a of its electric They're motor. They're bogarting the good parking spaces. <laughs> yes, they are. And I need my Bolt to like to get some some juice before me, I know me you to do. get anywhere. Um, it's also something that I'm learning is that the majority of um, of EV owners do not live in the city where um, some people might have been convinced. They might have thought that the EV is the urban kind of car experience. Wait, what and are you saying? That's that's apparently not the case. More common than not, um, EV owners are out in the countryside or the suburban setting where they can charge at home without any hassle. I did not know that. Reasonably, um, this is something that you and I probably don't talk a lot about. Of uh, about well, one of the is, many things we need to eventually talk about, is, I'm sure. Is um, public transit. And the people in cities have probably much wider access to public transit. And it's probably more affordable than owning a car and buying a, uh, a charging station or, or charging even charging your car on the regular. And so as a result, the people who are more likely to be buying these EVs are not in the city because the people in the city have better alternatives than car ownership. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, where I grew up, it's a fairly large city for Quebec. I mean, I was just outside of the fairly large city, sorry. Mm -hmm. And there was no public transit. There was nothing. There were no buses. I mean, I think there was one bus that went between my town and the larger city. And that was it. And that, but when I say the the town, I mean, I lived five, six kilometers, it's like three or four miles outside of town. So I would have to get into town and then wait for this one bus and then take that bus into the other town to have any kind of public transit. But now you, you, there are people in those kinds of towns, in those smaller towns, um, away from the big city, 
who are looking uh, forward to to driving an EV. They're they're looking for that EV driving experience, um, emissions free, and uh, the different a uh, different you know cost of ownership, and that's where they're they're finding it there. Even in my where I grew up was not downtown, and uh, there are much more public chargers. Um, and like they're right off the highway there. It's like a little bit more convenient in that regard than somebody who has to try to find a specific parking spot downtown and figure it all out there. What's the crowd like? What's the crowd like at the chargers at night? Like, is it different? Like, does it, is there like a day crowd and a night crowd? And it's like kind of like a tension between them. I actually have not encountered another person. I have seen people, I've seen vehicles charging overnight, like all night long, and they just sit there at a charger until like the morning comes and the person comes. And they use it like essentially their own park, their own parking spot. Which That's I'm not great. Sure. Uh, congratulations <laughs> to anyone who's doing that because that is the spirit of how those, those charging stations were intended to be used. Just hogging all of the juice. That's a, that's a, but you know, you bring that up. It's a real problem. I mean, I've, you're not the first person I've heard talk about that issue. And I don't really know what the solution is because you can't just eject these cars once they're full. Yeah. Uh, and they panic no, too. I think an alarm will go off if you try. <laughs> the, I think they're locked too. So there's got to be some way to deal with that eventually, I think. I mean, I guess the real solution is eventually every parking space is an EV parking space. That's the the ideal, right? And then we all have cables flying everywhere all the time, just like in the olden days when they had tramways and you couldn't look out your own window without seeing a million wires. Yeah. I guess that's where we're going until we get inductive uh, inductive charging. Although I think inductive charging is a fantasy in a city like mine where they can't even keep potholes from happening. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I agree with you on that. Inductive charging sounds like, uh, I mean, maybe it's more convenient um, in private areas, like uh, like a shopping mall or something. But please, the public, I don't know if the public infrastructure can handle inductive, inductive charging. charging is the hydrogen fuel cell of the electric charging oh, world. Oh, that's so mean. So the point you're making is that a hydrogen fuel cell will always be the future and will never be the like the current generation technology. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. We'll have thorium reactors in our cars before we have inductive charging. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm looking forward to driving the Soul EV, which I'll talk about next week, even though our U.S. members, will not, our listeners will not be getting that vehicle. I'm sure well, they want to know. Thanks what for telling out. them not to tune in, Sammy. No, they're, they're going to want to know what they're missing out on. But I think essentially it's, it's going to be a, a Kona EV, but in a different body style. There is nothing sweeter than knowing what you're missing out on. Am I, am I wrong? Yeah, that's <laughs> How would I know? <laughs> uh, I'll, next week, I will be talking about the dun, 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 Colorado ZR2. Oh, nice. Okay. So now we're still continuing this off-road trucking um, conversation. I want to tell you, Sammy, the ZR2 that I'm driving has obscenely bright LED off-road lights mounted on the uh, the roll bar. Yeah. I should not have this level of power. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say for now. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to, to hear all about your exploits. I'm sure our listeners can't wait either. So in the meantime, let's direct them over to our website. It's unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And while you're there, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can check out all of our um, previous episodes. And you can also get in touch with us. It's very easy. There's a contact form. You fill that out. Uh, and it lands in our inbox. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, there's a few ways you can do that. 
uh, other than the contact form. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram where my, uh, my, I was going to say my hashtag, my handle is at hunting Benjamin. And if you want to find Sammy, he's on the cesspool that is Twitter. You can find him there at Sammy underscore hot, like you're laughing. Or you can old school, old school, old school email us, benjamin at benjaminhunting.com. And we'd love to hear from you questions, criticisms, um, weird ideas. We're open to everything. Very cool. And you know what? We have gotten actually a lot of uh, feedback over the past few months. So keep it coming. Uh, It means a lot to us. That reminds me. I believe we did have one listener question that I wanted to address this month. And I'm going to pull it up now. Yeah. So we had... um, Mark wrote into us to talk about the the Lincoln Navigator. So he just bought a 2020 Black Label, which is like nice. the top tier Navigator. It well is, done, Mark. And um, I, the reason I wanted to bring this up uh, as we're closing out the show is because the Navigator is in some ways a direct competitor to the Denali. Not the Black Label because that's way into Escalade territory. But he wanted to hear our thoughts on the Navigator now that there's more competition. So he's saying there's an updated GLS. There's the new X7. He thinks the navigator is the segment leader and he thinks the escalade could change that so uh sammy what do you think i mean the navigator is good is it x7 good because the pricing is a little bit different and i think the the uh badge recognition is a little bit different but there's no denying that the trucks share a lot in common I will admit the Navigator is excellent, especially for the for the price and the styling of the of the Navigator is really classy. It's one of those vehicles that looks uh, and plays the part really well. Uh, the X7 I do think has a little bit abrupt styling, um, and you can get it. You can get a very expensive X7 with uh, with that V8 motor. I actually really do like the GLS. I think it can be had at a decent price. Um, and they always make this joke that it's the uh, the S class of SUVs, and I don't no, think they're far. We know that. I don't think true. they're far off, but I do like the GLS. I just think that there is a brand image that is that is exuded when you buy one of these BMWs or uh, Mercedes that the Navigator just doesn't carry with it. And I think the Escalade also carries this bold, brash design. It's all square. It's all like tough. It's very. It is a different design in a different buyer, in my opinion, who finds the Navigator in the Escalade more attractive than the German offerings. I, I will say this. I think that the uh, Escalade is going to have to try very hard if it wants to knock the Navigator um, on its butt because yeah. the current Navigator is truly an excellent vehicle. I think um, it's definitely better than I, – I like the Infiniti QX80, but I think the Navigator goes a step beyond. And uh, there's not a lot there's, of competition. It's so easy to understand why you like the QX80. It has, uh, it looks wild, and it has, like, it, it nails the basics. It has a decent suspension setup and has a really good V8 engine. It, it has the best interior ever installed in an Infinity. I mean, the QX50 <laughs> is close. The QX50 is quite good. But the but, QX80, it's, 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 redonkulous how nice that interior is it's just you get into it and you're like what am i driving like it it doesn't feel like anything else in the infinity lineup it's like one of those cars with like the the um the floor mats are like super plush it's like five inches thick like floor mats and you're like oh wow i'm taking off my shoes so i think you know i don't know i i think what's cool about mark writing in is he was cross shopping these vehicles and to hear someone cross-shopping a Navigator and an X7, that really shows how far that brand has come recently right. uh, yeah. with that with the Navigator model. Uh, I like them both quite a bit. I think they're different 
in terms of who they're appealing to in some ways. I think that uh, the Navigator is more traditional. The X7, uh, it, it has the more polarizing styling, like you said. But uh, really, it's it's... I haven't driven the new GLS, but I think it's a really great time if you have to buy if if you like you're in that window right now where you're like, oh, oh I have to buy a replacement for my enormous luxury SUV. What's it going to be? I mean, these are the best choices we've had in probably ten years. I agree. It is. It, it you know what? I didn't even register that. I didn't even understand to compare a Navigator to a BMW and Mercedes. It's something that probably hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so like kudos to them for getting to that level. And thank you, Mark, for writing in. And as we said, we'd love to hear from more of you. So until then, um, have a great week. Thank you, and can't, I can't wait to talk to you later.